Welcome to The Third Wheel, Herbert Smith Freehill's podcast series exploring all things ESG. I'm Mel Debenham, one of the hosts of The Third Wheel um, and a partner in the environment planning and communities practice here at Herbert Smith Freehills. And I'm usually joined by Tim Stutt, who is a corporate partner and Australian lead for ESG. Um, but today we have some special guests and, and I will introduce them in a moment. We're talking about all things The Voice and the upcoming referendum on constitutional change to recognise the First Peoples of Australia. On 14th of October this year, everyone eligible to vote will be asked to say yes or no to this question, a proposed law to alter the constitution to recognise the First Peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Do you approve this proposed alteration? It is an important question and one I appreciate Australians will hold a spectrum of views on. But irrespective of your views, I think understanding the genesis of the voice and what the change to the constitution means is universally important ahead of the 14th. Because it's in everyone's best interest to make a well-informed and considered decision on the day. As lawyers, it's probably no surprise that we've been looking at the change and implications of the change quite deeply. It's what we're wired to do. Um, we're also lucky at HSF to have a number of people who have had a very long involvement in The Voice and we benefit from that inside information. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome two of those people. Our first guest is Gemma McKinnon. Gemma is a Barkindji woman from Wilcannia in far West New South Wales. Gemma's been on the third wheel before, so thanks for coming back. Um, she is an administrative law expert, the responsible business manager for Australia and Asia at Herbert Smith Freehills. Um, so thanks for joining us, Gemma. Thanks for having me. Great to be back. We also have Bianca Janovic. So I think this is your first trip on the wheel, Bianca. It is. Thanks, Mel. Bianca leads our Australian pro bono team here at HSF as pro bono council and has a wealth of experience working with First Nations communities in urban, rural and remote settings. Um, it's fantastic to have you both here today. So Gemma and Bianca are going to share with me some of the voice history, um, as well as some loyally thinking about the change and potent potential consequences of the change to the constitution. I've got a number of questions to ask that pick up on some of the themes emerging from a wide range of discussions that we have all had about the voice and the referendum, both within our organisation and externally. Um, Gemma, perhaps I'll, I'll start with you um, and we can start way back um, at the beginning, pre-announcement of the referendum and, and the voice. And I know that you were involved in the regional dialogue process that led to the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Can you give us a quick explainer of that process and how it relates to the voice proposal that we're looking at now? Absolutely. Um, the regional dialogues and constitutional convention at Uluru were designed and delivered by the Referendum Council. The council was established to advise the government on the way forward on constitutional recognition of Indigenous people. Uh, this was the most recent in a long history of calls from First Nations people for parliamentary representation in one way or another. Um, you know, think 
Larrakia petition, Barunga statement, um, and they were all looking for um, a way to allow First Nations people a platform to speak with Parliament directly about the issues um, affecting them. The dialogue process uh, this time around was somewhat different in that whilst previous attempts had been unilateral, this was part of a concerted effort from the Australian government through a bipartisan process to recognise First Nations people in the constitution. The dialogues are the most proportionately significant consultation process that has ever been undertaken with First Nations people and the design of each um, process or well, design of the process uh, considered cultural legitimacy as much as having a sound methodology. So each of the 12 sites were run by local leaders and invited around 100 attendees comprising of 60% traditional owners, 20% community organisations and 20% key individuals. And these participants were asked over the course of three days to essentially identify what form or forms of constitutional recognition would be acceptable to them. Each regional dialogue considered and tested options for constitutional recognition against local priorities. And then at the convention at Uluru, we compared the outcomes of each dialogue and found strong consensus for the voice, treaty and truth-telling set of sequenced reforms. So the voice, as intended by the participants at the dialogues, should inform the use of the race power, public policy and legislation affecting First Nations people and communities, and it should be representative of and accountable to those communities. So where we sit now in the process is a key milestone, constitutional recognition of First Nations people in the form chosen by First Nations people. And if we see a yes outcome on October 14, the next step will be a return to dialogues with community to figure out how that representative and accountable piece um, will come to fruition. Thanks, Gemma. That, I think that history is really interesting to reflect on. Um, and a few things that came out of that, which are good reminders in thinking about the referendum proposal, was that bipartisan nature um, of the initiating process. Um, and also that it did have a really wide range of views um, within those regional dialogues. So, you know, you mentioned traditional owners, but also community organisations, other stakeholders were involved. Um, and it was really, I guess, quite a quite a comprehensive um, process that led to uh, that constitutional recognition um, outcome. Um, so, yeah, it's, the, the history is important to reflect on today. And maybe turning now, Bianca, to the referendum proposal, can you share with us a bit about the actual proposed constitutional amendment? Uh, I think that's import important. Um, and what that amendment tells us about voice. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mel. And, and so what you read out earlier is the question that we'll all be asked to vote on on the 14th of October the proposed law that we're being asked to approve at the referendum would insert around 100 words into the constitution and the amendment can be broken down into four parts. So first, we have some introductory words that recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first people of Australia. 
and essentially that sets out the the purpose of the provision. So Gemma's mentioned there's been a you know a long history of calls for recognition in the constitution, and that's really what those introductory words are about. And then there's three short clauses. So firstly, a clause that establishes the voice. Secondly, a clause that describes the the constant constitutionally guaranteed function of the voice to make representations to the parliament and to the executive government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So I mean, this, this clause has had a lot of discussion in legal circles and more broadly, and it's worth pausing on it just to, to I guess, discuss or unpack a few parts of it. it. The words used in the clause are may make representations. It's a very um, important word, may. Isn't it? May, yeah, we all remember that discussion from law school. Um, <laughs> And, and what it means is that the voice can, but it doesn't have to make representations. And the use of the word representations is also important and quite deliberate. You know, mm. uh, we, we talk about the voice of, as an advisory body, but the words in the constitution don't use that, or the proposed words don't use the word advice to really make, make clear that, you know, there's, there's not going to be an obligation here to, um, to comply or to follow the representations that, that are made by the voice. It's not a duty to consult equally. Um, mm. So, you know, that's, I think, something that, that had quite a bit of discussion earlier earlier on in some of the debates, but it's, it's accepted, I think, that every law relating to Aboriginal people is not going to have to go past the voice. It, it, the creation of the voice would just provide an opportunity for the voice so to advise. Mm. It's not another chamber. No, it is not. No, no, I think it's uh, commonly accepted that, that that it is not another chamber. And then lastly, um, there's a clause that gives the parliament broad remit to make laws relating to the voice, to allow the structure of the voice to adapt and, and respond to the needs of First Nations people. So that's where we see the power to make laws about the composition and functions and powers and procedures um, of, of the voice and maintain that, you know, that parliamentary supremacy. So, I mean, the government and the First Nations referendum working group that's been advising it have indicated that the voice referendum will involve a vote on, on the principle of the voice. And there's design principles that sit behind that, which are available on the government's voice website and I'd really recommend people check those out if you haven't already and we can find you know further indications as to what form the voice could take um, from the reports that have been written over the years and particularly the co-design process that was undertaken uh, under the Morrison government and led by Marcy Langton and Tom Karma. There's a lot of detail there about what a proposed national voice to parliament and, and I guess relatedly local and regional voices could look like in the co-design report. And again, that's that's online uh, at voice.gov.au. Um, I mean, naturally, Mel, you know, there's going to need to be a lot more work and consultation done post-referendum if there is a yes vote. And that would happen between between the parliament and between First Nations communities and others to work out what the exact shape of the voice should be. Um, 
and that's that's really important that there is that critical involvement in the design process by First Nations communities. So ultimately, what we're voting on here is whether there should be a voice at all, guided by the principles that um, that have been settled. And Bianca, um, I mean, I work a lot um, in sort of statute and statutory advice. Um, and often when I'm delivering training, I start with the constitution in explaining what powers the Commonwealth has and what powers the state has. Um, mm. But the the proposal here is pretty similar to anything, any other statute. You, you have a head power in the constitution and then laws flow from that, right? Um, and, and those yeah. laws are subject to parliamentary scrutiny and, um, you know, consultation with all manner of interests that um, may be impacted by the laws. So the, the process that we're seeing here um, is typical um, in terms of the development of statute on new topics. Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So one of the um, questions that I have heard in recent weeks um, is, I guess, some concern about um, what happens if we have a voice um, and the success or otherwise of the voice? So, Bianca, I'd be interested in your views about if we do have a yes um, successful referendum and the voice is established, subject to all of that process that um, we mentioned in the future, but government doesn't actually take on board mm. the representations that are made or recommendations, what happens then? Yeah, look, it's it's a good question, and you know, I think part of this comes to to a pragmatism about um, what the limits of the voice are and and must necessarily be to operate within the system that we all live and uh, live and work in. I mean, as mentioned earlier, it is an advisory body, so um, it will be up to the government of the day to determine what to do with the representations that are made by. The voice, um, and of course, up to the Australian government, Australian public rather, to decide who who the government is. We can take some instruction from, you know, how that might all work from from one of the design principles for the voice, which is you know, the voice will give independent advice to Parliament and to the executive, and it goes on to say that Parliament and the executive should seek representations in writing from the voice early in the development of proposed laws and policies. So we can see what's sort of in, intended um, and, and maybe we can get into a, a bit more later some of the, the what was your word, loyally, loyally <laughs> answers, because there has been a lot of discussion about, you know, what what happens and and what what options are there to take things to court or or otherwise mm. challenge how how the government responds or doesn't respond to the voice and maybe the other side of the coin of that question and perhaps Gemma I'll throw to you on this one is um we've got an active voice making representations to government um but what if the the voice the voice isn't appropriately representing First Nations views or, um, you know, either wholly or, or in part because of its competition, what happens then? This is like something that is, uh, I think, rightfully so, a massive area of um, 
interest or concern, depending on <laughs> who you mm. are, um, in in the First Nations community, is you know we we are a large and diverse group um, with you know really varied experience across the country and and really um, varied experiences as individuals and as you know experiences as a First Nations person so the question of how a body um, can you know can accurately reflect um, the thoughts and feelings and opinions of a community is is tough right but that that's democracy yeah. <laughs> um, and I think there's a few sort of um, elements that uh, we can look at for, from a legal perspective and from a design perspective that that try to answer those questions um, one is that this is the reason that the you know the detail so to speak is put in legislation um, it's quite deliberate that the provision in the constitution is very um, high level and and um, and basic uh, that's because you we you know we didn't want the detail to be locked into the constitution uh, because it's it's set up in a way that it does recognize the fact that this is a new um, this is a new project for us as a nation yeah. and you want there to be a degree of flexibility in terms of um, what it looks like and how it functions because we are it is going to be a, a bit of a sort of um, testing uh, period at the beginning and we want the voice to be able to evolve with the community um, as the community evolves so the constitutional enshrinement obviously protects that that guarantee to the voice, but how the voice looks and how it represents the community um, needs to have that level of flexibility. So putting that detail in legislation rather than in the constitution um, provides that sort of security. Um, and then the second is that the intention from the dialogues and from the people that um, that brought this idea to the nation is that it is a, that the voice is accountable to communities. Um, the it's always been envisioned, and certainly the community, you know, speaks of a hope that it is a um, a bottom up uh, yeah. body that it really is representative of our communities, and that. That if it's if it's not accurately representing um, the community, that then it's us who have the power to um, remove or you know or, or to to push back on that. I think one of the de design principles as well is that it you know the the terms are, are time limited um, because you know, just just like just like Parliament um, more generally, there needs to be those mechanisms that then um, ensure that. The people that are being represented feel that they're being represented um, accurately. Such a good point you made around accountability to the community as a whole. Um, you know, that's First Nations people, but it's everyone else who comprises the Australian community. Um, uh, and, you know, also this idea, I think, as well, and I've heard people a little bit concerned about um, the level of detail that is in the constitution versus what will come. Um, 
but that's the same as you know any other law um the constitution is very difficult to change um and the detail in every regulatory regime that exists in Australia is a combination of legislation, regulations, some soft law thrown in um, for good measure as well. Um, at the moment, um, there is a new regulatory regime that's been created for offshore wind. Um, and it's a really iterative process, right, of, of testing sort of government's risk appetite, what we need to protect people and the environment and cultural heritage and communities and amenity um, against sort of practical workability um, requirements and a whole range of things. And that's taken place over a number of years. So um, I'm assuming the voice is going to be no different. It's going to be an iterative development um, with bits that will be tweaked as um, as legislation is put into effect should the referendum be successful. Bianca, um, maybe this is the loyally moment in the discussion. Um, there has been a lot of commentary in the media that allowing the voice to make representative representations, I should say, to the executive government might lead to a lot of litigation challenging government decisions. Um, in fact, there were some calls for constitutional law experts to limit or remove this provision because of that uh, perceived risk. What can you tell us about the decision to extend the voices reach to executive government? Yeah, look, I think, you know, probably to take it, the question in, in, in two parts, which is why extend the reach to the executive, executive government? Why is that seen as important? And then, you know, what then? <laughs> what's, the, what's, the, what's the risk yeah. of that? Or what have some people thought? might be the risk of that. So as to the why, uh, this is something that, from what I understand, was incredibly important to the First Nations Working Group uh, and others that the executive be included, included there. And my understanding of one of the key reasons why that's the case is when you look at what the role of the executive is in how laws and policies are created in this country. So, um, by the voice being able to make representations to both the executive and parliament. What that means is that the voice can have a say through that process from creation of laws and policies through to their enactment and operation. You know, when we think about what does the executive do, it it's developing the policies from which mm -hmm. the laws are then created. Um, you know, it's performing functions and, and powers under those laws um, and and that's really critical in terms of how what actually happens on the ground you might have something in a piece of legislation about the health system but the policy is about how that's then implemented you know in health centers on the ground and so on is is often where the rubber really hits the road and where that practical difference can be made and you know, the Law Council of Australia has done a lot of incredible work uh, and research and thinking on this and and they've said uh, in their guide for the legal profession on the voice that it's appropriate that the voice can make representations across the breadth of the executive given the different roles that various parts of the executive play in developing and reviewing policy performing powers and and functions and proposing laws and i think that's that's a good a good reminder to that sort mm -hmm. of that why question takes us back to the sort of separation of powers lesson. Um, Again, <laughs> we're back at law school today. We're back at law school, yeah. 
Um, and, and Parliament, of course, will have the ability, to your point earlier, about the flex to make or amend laws to make sure that the voice is functioning effectively. So if the processes relating to how the voice engages with the exec are not working well, they can be amended. So, you know, the government could legislate, the, the parliament could legislate that all representations must go through the relevant minister, for example, mm. to, to streamline things. And I mean, the second part of your of the question is then the the courts. Uh, yes. As a as a recovering litigator myself, um, you know, <laughs> yep, going to court. You know, we we think it's going to be a big part of our lives, um, but you, the, the courts are there and they have an important role. So the High Court of I'm Australia, sorry, it has the jurisdiction in all matters arising under the constitution or its interpretation. Uh, how, how many challenges would get there? But, you know, who well, knows? But remains to be seen, if any. It, it does, right? And, and, you know, I think the majority of expert legal opinion is that certainly the actions of the parliament about its relationship with with the voice would not be justiciable. So in English, whether the parliament does mm -hmm. or doesn't follow the advice of the voice is not something that could be challenged in in court proceedings. And I think that's an important important distinction to make. Thinking about um, today and the status quo, perhaps for a moment. Um, obviously, there are various ways. Uh, that First Nations people can participate in um, the democracy. So we do have Indigenous members of Parliament. We've obviously got laws and policies that either directly or indirectly deal with matters that are important to First Nations people. Um, a question that I hear is, you know, is the so what, I guess, about the voice in that context? Um, why do we need the voice? How is the voice different from um, the current avenues for participation today? Gemma, I don't know if you've got some thoughts on that. <laughs> There's a, well, a few things, a few things spring to mind. Um, one is, I guess, in terms of the so what, I think there's two key elements to what we're trying to, what is trying to be achieved through the introduction of the voice through this referendum. Um, and one is the constitutional recognition element of it, um, yes. which could have been done in many ways, but is being done to recognize um, the, the long, long history that First Nations people have on this land to recognize that 60,000 years of, of caring for this country um, and, and, and to recognize um, that that history is much longer um, than the history of Australia as we know it today. So that's that's number one. And I think that's, that's the real so what about it. The voice is, as we said earlier, the chosen form of recognition. If we're going to do it, let's do it in a way that actually provides some some level of substance beyond the, you know, as Noel Pearson would put it, the plaque, you know, the, mm. the gold plaque in the constitution. Um, let's 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 do it in a way that actually um, might achieve something. 
um, and 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 you know and speaks to uh, principles of self determination. So the voice itself, the so what about it? You know what what makes it different to um, the National Indigenous Australians Agency, for example, is that the the, the body and the people elected to that body um, are there to represent the First Nations com community, to represent their mob, um, not to represent a party, not to represent yeah. an electorate, not to represent their employer, um, or or and not to represent a government department at, like the NIAA. Um, they're purely there to, to be representative um, of 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 their people um and that that's really special and unique um and different to ev anything that we that we currently have um it's also uh when we talk about the practical application of it what might it what might it achieve um mm. for the community for us as a nation is that we know that it's i think about six billion dollars a year is spent on programs um, specifically for the First Nations community. Um, and that's a lot of money. And it's a lot of money that we know is largely being spent inefficiently. Um, we know that because the closing the gap tar targets aren't making a lot of progress. We know that because there's still um, massive inequities between the First Nations community and the rest of the community. Um, and what the, you know, what the what the voice um, provides the prospect of is more efficient spending of that money. Um, money being spent in a way that we um, you know that we believe is going to be spent more more effectively because it's informed by the people um, who are the recipients of that spending who are in the community and who understand um, what the community is going to be responsive to and also the sort of regional local nuances of problems uh, you know what's um, what's good for the community in Tennant Creek is not necessarily going to work for um, for the for Yarrabah. So I think there, you know, what, what we're talking about is something that, and I think this is why people find it so difficult to get their heads around. Maybe is that what we're talking about is something that we've never seen before, um, and that can be a little scary for people, but it's also really exciting um, and. This isn't a if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of situation because uh, what we know um, is that, you know, it is broken um, and this is what well, you can't be spending six billion dollars a year and not shifting the dial. Right. That's that's exactly right. So I think, you know, rightly, there's a lot of skepticism, um, but also I think, uh, you know, some potential for change and that's that's what I think is being put on the table for people. I've got one more question uh, for you both um, and this is around equality. Again another thematic that um, we've heard in discussions you know society from a society whole society perspective we we value equality in our community um, 
anti-discrimination and equal opportunity legislation have been introduced to protect all races and religions against discrimination to foster that equality. The voice is only recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So the question is, are we creating inequality um, through this change by introducing the voice? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think we're starting from a place of equality, you know, would Good be point. probably my, 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 my first response to that question. Uh, so I don't see how we're creating inequality, you know, the um, First Nations people were only, you know, counted um, through the 1967 referendum. It's, it's, um, there is not equality. Um, I, I, I personally, you know, when I read the Uluru Statement from the heart and it's call for a fuller expression of Australians' nationhood, I think that that's what the reform is is seeking, as I understand it. I guess to put more of a a lawyer's hat on, um, I won't give my my opinion, but uh, Robert French, so former High Court Chief Justice, has written about this this precise topic, and and he says the voice rests upon the historical status of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's Indigenous people. It does not rest upon race. It accords mm. with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, for which Australia voted in 2009. It is consistent with the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. No, Gemma, what, what do you think? Yeah, and I think, I, well, obviously, I, I agree. I concur um, <laughs> with Justice French. I think, you know, um, equal employment opportunity laws are a really great example because they're in place to prevent workplace discrimination on the basis of, uh, you know, gender, race, religion, disability, in acknowledgement of historical wrongs. They were introduced because something wasn't working um, and we wanted to put in place um, legislation that, that would prevent it happening in the future. I think the road to achieving equality often means introducing measures that get people on that level playing field. And the other thing that all, always sort of jumps to mind as well when we're talking about this question of equality is that the Constitution already enables the Commonwealth to make laws about people based on their race. Um, and the intention is that the voice provide guidance on the appropriate use of that power. Um, it's not like, as Bianca said, we, we already sort of have the ability to um, have division based on race embedded in the constitution as it currently stands. Um, and, and yeah, it is, it's an important acknowledgement that First Nations people um, inherently hold a special place in this country as original custodians. Um, and, you know, coming back to the original purpose of this, which is that recognition, um, constitutional recognition element. How do we recognise that 60,000 years of caring for country? Um, it, it's, it, it's a kind of um, acknowledgement of the reality of, of our country. And uh, yeah, so I, I think it's, uh, it's an interesting conversation to have the question around equality, but um, it's, yeah, it, it, it's somewhat 
disjointed from uh, from from reality. Um, I think. And it's uh, it's really important to be focusing on that sixty thousand years, right, of caring for country. But it's not just yesterday or today. It's that continued care. Um, and the recognition that constitutional reform um, will give to the the future care to country that First Nations people um, will deliver for everyone's benefit. Um, Gemma, Bianca, it has been such a rich discussion to have today. Um, so thank you for spending so much time with me on the third wheel. Um, I really appreciate um, your wonderful insights and sharing so openly with us today. Now, if you're listening and still unsure about what your answer is going to be on the 14th of October, you've got questions or you want to know more, that's okay. Um, and I think it, it's really important to gather as much information as you can so that you walk into the polling booths on the 14th, um, having a, a really good understanding of what this means and, and what you think your decision should be. There are so many excellent sources of information available and a really good place to start is the Joint Select Committee Parliamentary Inquiry materials on the Australian Parliamentary website. Um, so this includes the final report into the inquiry into the constitutional change, the hearing transcripts and submissions. So um, there are a wide range of materials available there um, with all sorts of um, views around the change. So it's a, such a good place to start. Um, for those of you liking things in plain English, which I certainly do, the Australian Electoral Commission also has some good materials, um, including on referendums generally. Um, so take a look at um, the AEC website. And finally, um, for those liking a more loyally um, view of the landscape, the Australian Public Law blog um, has some excellent materials as well. We'll pop the links up um, in um, the, the notes around this episode if you're interested to find out more. Before we close, as is the tradition on the third wheel, um, an interesting fact from the world of ESG, and I'm turning today to statistics, um, I can't help myself, um, and we've taken a look at, um, at registration, voter registration numbers, and there are a record number of Australians enrolled to vote in the voice referendum, 97.7% of the population, which is pretty extraordinary, 17.7 um, million people at the close of rolls. Um, I've been really interested in um, looking at the numbers uh, relating to younger people and the percentage of 18 to 24 year olds enrolled uh, to vote is 91.5%, which is actually the highest rate ever, um, which is fantastic, making up just over 10% of the voting population. Uh, the share of Indigenous people on the voting roll is also at a record high at 94%. For this referendum, it's estimated that there will be around 1.2 million postal votes that will need to be counted. So depending on the margin, um, there may be a delay in knowing what the result is um, by law, um, a full 13 day period must pass um, before there's a declaration. Spare a thought on the day for election staff and there will be many, many volunteers um, that, that are helping make this referendum happen. Um, and in particular, setting up polling stations in remote areas um, 
is representing one of the biggest logistical challenges um, in Australian electoral history. Um, they're using planes, helicopters, helicopters boats um, to make sure that people in the most isolated parts of Australia have their opportunity to vote. Every vote in this referendum counts. So get in your postal vote or attend a polling station at your local school or community centre. Enjoy that democracy sausage um, or home cooked baked good along the way. Um, and importantly, be a part of the conversation before the day. As ever, thank you for listening and we look forward to you joining us for the next episode of The Third Wheel. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.